I'm in my sister's old room. It's hysterical. Like, there's still posters of Aha. Hello, it's the Wellbeing Lab. Today we're talking about codependency. I'm feeling very controlled because I'm back in the attic. You've heard of the show Cash in the Attic. This is called Will in the Attic. Could call it Gay in the Attic. Could call it anything in the attic. Anyway, here I am. We're speaking about codependency. It's a big topic. Then we're talking to Dr. Jane Hallsall, which is hard for me to say because I struggled with my L's. Tricky with me, actor. And I have a list. We're talking about codependency with her, and I start by asking her to define codependency. Well, the term codependency originated in the context of addiction in the 70s, and it was coined to describe patterns of behaviour and enabling tendencies often seen in relationships of individuals struggling with substance use disorder or any type of addiction. It was pioneered by actually Peer Melody and Melody Beattie, you know, obviously they're big authors in this field who are amazing, I'd highly recommend them, but... Pia Melody, she describes codependency as a set of learnt behaviours and coping mechanisms that can impact various aspects of a person's life. Things such as interpersonal relationships, self-worth, mental health. And are there different forms of codependency? So there is. The two identities that most people know about in terms of codependency is, again, Pia Melody coined these terms, but the falsely empowered And then you've got the rescuer, the helper, and they're known as the disempowered codependent. So there's two identities that people tend to form into. So if we're going into that, the disempowered codependent is someone who habitually puts other people's needs and desires above their own. They typically have low self-esteem. They tend to be people pleasers. They feel powerless in the relationships. They have difficulties setting healthy boundaries with people and they very much get very anxious if the other person's upset and they just invest everything in the other and they lose their sense of self so there's a real neediness with that sort of codependent they're doing everything to please their partner and they lose their sense of self and they get very anxious but they're actually doing it in a way to control the outcome and then the falsely empowered one the caretaker That typically refers to someone who appears to be in a a position of power or control in the relationship. They look for validation. They can appear confident and assertive, but they manipulate others using guilt or control as a way of getting what they need. But they're actually also very insecure and they believe that their value comes from the adulation of others. So they very much channel it into work or success and need the admiration of others for their own sense of self-worth. That's from the false empowerment. Yeah, the false empowered is more the one that wants to manipulate the others rather than truly being in touch with their own emotional Mm. needs. So they use tactics such as blame, guilt, intimidation to get their own way in the relationships. But they also struggle with vulnerability, they fear intimacy, and it's a survival tactic. The thing is, codependents don't consciously behave this way. This is ingrained because of their family systems or what they've been through in childhood. So if you have grown up in a family where there might be addiction or there might be mental health disorder or you're a victim of abuse of some sort, you know, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, then these are often ways that they have formed in order to cope with the world to survive. 
and a way of managing different relationships in their lives. I mean, the thing about codependency is, it's not just in addictive relationships. It's could be your coworker, it could be a toxic friendship, it could be a family dynamic, or you know, a parenting dynamic. And this is where it's it could evolved. Could be a neighbor. To, yeah, it could be a neighbor. It could be yeah. anything like that. Any unhealthy, toxic sort of relationship where you lose that part of yourself. Yes. So here's an example. So let's say there's someone who's very wealthy mm-hmm. and they take people for dinner and they will always, even if someone says, no, 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 on this occasion, we'd all like to chip in. But he sneak or she sneaks off and pays, pays the, bill. the bill. Yes. So that might seem really generous, really generous, really kind. So some people might say, why is that unhealthy behaviour or controlling behaviour? Because they're just being lovely. But actually, if you break it down, they're not listening to other people's needs and wants. They're, well, why can't we split it this time? They want to feel empowered. And it's not coming from a genuine place, is it? It's a covert way of controlling. But often people aren't aware of that, that they are doing it to control because it's their need to be liked. It's their need to feel validated, to people please, to want to be you know, seen by the other in a certain way. So it's like, oh, actually, I'm being generous, I'm being kind, I'm so nice and all this. But the problem is they then expect that from the other back. And then Ah. they get really upset when their needs aren't met. So their own sense of self through what other people think of them. For the disempowered, they're very much more about giving than receiving. They can't sit with being given gifts or given things. They need to be the people that give. I wonder what part resentment and anger has to play within that, because people might be doing things. I mean, I used to be very codependent. And to be honest, when I found out, when I read Peer Melody, you know, it was a game changer. Hmm. But I had to look at certain things. Like I would hold on to resentment quite a lot. So I might be like, well, I'm looking after this person. and I've been around there because they're in trouble. I've dropped everything don't worry I'll I'll leave my dinner immediately and I'll do that and then I might have some sort of resentment that well why is no one doing that for me exactly I'll drop everything for them that's exactly what someone with the disempowered codependent how how they feel because their expectation is that if I'm going above and beyond and I'm dropping everything for you then I should also be having that validated and having the same in return but then the reality is it's it's not realistic. It's not a healthy dynamic to be having. It's toxic because actually we are all responsible for ourselves and we can't have the expectation that others should behave in a certain way because we're only accountable for ourselves. So if we yes. choose to do these behaviours, then we have to take responsibility when no one will reciprocate that back in the way that we're looking for. And I wonder if that's why codependency is one of the harder things for people to grasp and take ownership of because there is quite now it's all explainable because of childhood wounds and childhood yep. survival tactics and coping tactics yeah let's say we grew up in an environment where we couldn't control things we want to be able to control things but it's quite often people find that quite hard and maybe the learning experience of people certainly for myself when I had to be like oh gosh my base intention isn't actually complete altruism it's trying to control and I'm harboring quite a lot of anger and I think people find that hard they probably feel a lot of shame when that comes up 
No, for sure. I mean, yeah. it's, it's very much deep rooted in shame, self-hatred, lack of self-worth. And this is how it gets channeled into different ways. So, you know, in terms of the falsely empowered, they will get their validation through success or work or money or being successful so that people can see their success and that's how they feel yes. validated. So how can, because it's quite convoluted, isn't it? Because I guess there's sort of various protective parts in place for people when they are codependent. Hmm. How do people come out of that? It's self-awareness. I mean, I think it starts by recognising are you actually behaving in ways that are detrimental to yourself? Do you struggle having healthy relationships? You know, we have high divorce rates. Do you find that you're in interpersonal relationships with people where you're the one meeting their needs? So the starting point is educating yourself. Obviously, there's groups like CODA, you know, the 12-step codependency group. But it's, I think it's the self-awareness. This is the tool to start. So education, learning more about yourself, going to a therapist, because it is rooted in childhood behaviours. So this is learned behaviours there. This is a void within ourselves that we are using to try and fix through another person. And we have to work things out in therapy and understand ourselves and, and look at the root cause of this and what has led to that sort of behavior. And often people aren't consciously behaving in this way. So it's very deep rooted. They're not conscious that they're doing this for, you know, around control or they think they're being nice. They think they're being generous. And then, like you said, the anger resentment comes and we have to unpack all of that and understand like, well, where actually... Where have you learned this behavior? How have you learned to survive in this way? What's this actually really about? So that you can actually shift this and have a healthier way of managing it. Yeah, and I also wonder on a sort of wider level, if it's a societal thing, if there's different, you know, maybe different cultures or different societies that sort of almost promote codependency. Do you know what I mean? That you could sort of fall into that more than others. So let's say if you've grown up in a very religious household, you know, it's always like, well, we do things for others. We do everything. You know, I oh, wonder completely. if some people can sort of fall into that behaviour. Yes, completely. I think it is. You're right. Different society, gender roles, everything. It's um, rooted in trauma and anxiety. So if you are from certain households or certain beliefs or you've been exposed to certain cultures, then yes, I think you are more prone to learning that this is this is how you've got to behave. This is what's acceptable. You learn that actually caretaking the others looking after someone else's needs is is what's expected and therefore then you take that into adulthood and you operate in the same way and then actually what you're avoiding is your emotions and using this as a way of masking the truth I guess yeah the truth really so some people might be listening and sort of think oh well hang on the other day my neighbor was in trouble or a friend was in trouble and I did go round and I help them. Now, does that mean I'm being codependent or does that mean that I'm just being a good friend? How can people sort of check in with whether they're, you know, you know what I mean? No, I think, I think that's a really good point. It's conscious awareness of things. You can do things from a caring place, but it's noticing these behaviours. So if you want to treat someone to a meal or you want to help your neighbour, great, do that. You know, that's how we should be. But is it to your detriment? Are you doing it? You know, it's understanding the reasons that you are operating that way are you doing it because you actually genuinely want to help the neighbor or are you doing it because you've got some other other reason there I've learned now could I sit with being present with a because this is another thing I think with codependency is that we don't allow ourselves to really sit with others and truly hear them because we can't cope with the discomfort 
because of our childhood of them being unhappy or them having stress or them so you know it, it conflates and creates a lot of conflict in relationships because I think we can't sit there with other people's discomfort. No you're spot on there because the key thing about codependency is it's the avoidance of emotion for both. These tactics are operated in a way so that people don't have to sit with their feelings. You know the caretaking everything's done as a way of avoiding emotions and yet every thought everything we do is triggered by a feeling and you're right if, if we can't sit with our own emotion it's like how do we sit with other people's and I guess that can sort of bleed into also parenting oh completely certain parents have come into therapy and they want to they use their children they're so enmeshed in their children and they do really struggle to meet their you know to listen to what they actually need what's healthy boundaries what is my child actually saying to me and actually just for the listeners it might be good to sort of define what enmeshment is well enmeshment is a term that's used just when sort of their lives are almost intertwined so if you're enmeshed with someone it's almost like you've lost your sense of identity it's very much enmeshed in the other so it's sort of ingrained within the other so a parent that might struggle to I don't know, I've heard an example recently where, you know, letting them go to university, say, and then they're so meshed that they go to the first month with them at university because they can't bear to let them go. You know, it's protecting their children at all costs and doing things that aren't actually helpful for the child. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think codependency comes back to all the roots of those things because it makes me think of attachment. Very much linked with attachment because codependents tend to have an anxious attachment style. And we've done an episode on attachment, but maybe we could just talk about that very briefly. What would be the symptoms of that? Well, codependency. Well, yeah, codependency, they're very much the need looking for the other. So So worried that they might leave. Yeah, the fear of rejection, the fear of abandonment. So the reasons why someone is codependent, they're doing everything to keep someone in their life through these tactics. And the point is that they're so anxious of being left that this is why they behave in the way they do. But isn't it funny that often... Because one of the big things that, that helped me sort of stop being codependent was actually beginning to own my truth and set boundaries, which if you've never done it before, is hard to begin with. Is that something that you encourage? Oh, completely. It is really hard to overcome codependency. It's a process. It's not something you're going to change overnight, especially if you're an adult and these are like your survival, your ways of functioning in a sense you know this is all linked to your family system so if you have got to you know change how you interact in your interpersonal relationships you have to have healthy boundaries you have to stop the people pleasing you have to learn to say no you have to think about what's the intent behind this why am I really doing this behavior what am I getting from that what's my expectation of others you know am I expecting too much from the other am I trying to control because often people do things like we said, and they don't even realize that they're doing it as a way of control and manipulating the other. They can be using it through guilt or gaslighting. People will see manipulation as such a big thing. But when I learned about how I could manipulate people, I just found it fascinating. Because I know, you know manipulation can seem almost evil in a way. But actually, I just thought, well, wow, that's a human behavior. I hadn't realized I was doing that. Well, I think it's a survival skill. I don't think you're consciously, you're going out to do it to hurt someone. I don't think ever, you know, a codependent doesn't go with the intent to cause pain or upset someone or do that. This is learnt behaviour. And I'm also thinking of 
how useful for me, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of it for other things like trauma and things like that, but for codependency, how useful CBT was actually. Yeah, when I work with clients, I use um, a model of integrative therapy. So using CBT, psychodynamic, it's identifying what behaviours, what are you actually, in terms of your thoughts, your negative automatic thoughts, what's your way of changing the feelings? What's a way of reframing it? Yes, because some of my thoughts might be, I was thinking particularly for someone that perhaps thinks, well, I need to be powerful and successful and telling everyone how many Mm. fast cars I've got. And maybe they fall into becoming a bit of a perfectionist, you know, and a high achiever. Yeah, that's exactly. So the falsely empowered codependent is definitely a perfectionist, the high achiever. That's where they get their inherent self-worth from. And there's something very empowering about learning that it's okay if people don't like you. And what I mean by that is, of course, I want people to like me, but I have control of monitoring my behaviour and my words and I take inventory of that. If someone doesn't like me for my truth, then that's okay. Do you know what I mean? I don't have control over how other people are going to feel about me. And that's quite liberating. I mean, let's say I need to get from A to B, someone pulls me over, they've got a flat tire, and I have to get to my destination. I don't know the person and they say, please, can you stop for half an hour and help me? And I say, well, I need to get to say it's a christening you need to get to a christening and they go oh well how selfish of you how dare you do that you haven't stopped and changed your day because i'm in need i need to be okay with going well i'm really sorry that's happened to you i've looked at my situation i can't let other people down and i'm okay if you're angry with me for that exactly you have to learn to prioritize yourself and that's where practicing self-care comes into it So it's focusing on your own emotional well-being. It's about being more assertive. It's identifying what your needs are, having that self-awareness, actually, and being able to say no. That must be a key one, actually, isn't it? Really working out, because people struggle with actually working out what their needs are if they've never even asked themselves that. Well, often people who are codependent have suppressed their needs or don't even recognise what they are because they've been brought up in an environment where actually... They've had to think about other people their whole life. I have clients and they're like, gosh, I've never really thought about what I want in life or what I need from a relationship or what I need from a partner because I've only ever thought about what I can do for the other. And if you have codependent tendencies and and you're in a relationship with someone who doesn't, what happens then? If you're in a relationship with someone and you're the codependent, then the chances are that the relationship won't work out. You'll either be really needy and push that person away, or if you're the falsely empowered and you're the caretaking, you know, after a while, the other person might recognise that they are being manipulated or their voice isn't heard or something. And then that again leads to the breakdown of the relationship. So the reality is, unfortunately, if you are prone to these sort of behaviours, you do everything to avoid being abandoned and rejected however often the worst fears you know manifest and they and they do actually get rejected because someone will leave them because they can't cope with it and I think that's great that you said that and being so honest about it because often when people do start changing their behaviors they recognize that they haven't been in the right relationship in the first place and so it might be scary and that includes friendships relationships with families 
personal relationships, you know, in terms of partners, even work. So change can be a really great thing. Yeah, it can. It can. I mean, I had um, a situation recently with a friendship and I've been friends since, you know, since I was 11, but it was toxic and it took a while to recognise because I always felt sorry for her and I always was doing everything and she never was there for me. And then in the end, I had to let her go out of my life and the relief that I felt by making that decision. And it was such a hard decision. So you're right. I think the point is, is when when we have these experiences, we often realise it's actually we might have dated a narcissist or we might have felt let down or we're attracted to certain people, but actually they haven't served us mm. because um, we haven't necessarily been in the right relationship. But we've been using them to fulfil the needs and that void within ourselves, but they mm. can't do that. And so when we work on ourselves and we go into that place of healing, then we can actually attract the right person and have a much healthier attachment. Yes, and sometimes those first initial upheavals of thinking, oh gosh, my life isn't exactly as I thought it was, that can be painful, but also the enlightenment could lead to much healthier relationships and a lot more ease. And, and I myself, I have ended relationships. Funny enough, one relationship I ended because I actually found I was too enmeshed from my past codependency and I just couldn't, couldn't change it. And um, I thought, I just don't think I can get back to a sort of boundaried approach. It wasn't about blaming the person or blaming myself. It was just like, this was formed in one way and I don't think it can be reformed to another. And that's fine. But you know what, you use the word blame there and I think you're not to blame if you are. This is a symptom of what you've been exposed to. So I think that's really important to, to acknowledge. Well, Jane, thank you so much, Dr. Jane. Thank you so much and take care. Thank you for having me. Well, that was very interesting. And it is a complex topic. So I would really recommend reading those books by Pia Melody and Melody BT. One of them is called Codependency No More. Uh, we'll put them in the show notes. And do get in touch and let us know what you thought of that. Maybe you identified some of your own behaviour and thinking patterns. Uh, or maybe behaviours in others. But yes, one of my favourite topics. Is there a plane going overhead? Yes. It's out of my control. Can't do anything about it. Now, do you want to hear some letters? Hey Will and Amy, in regards to the episode on forest bathing, this week I visited the Japanese garden in St Morgan. Now that sounds like it's in Cornwall. It was so tranquil and peaceful, it was lovely just to sit and be completely in the moment. The best thing was that I came across it completely unexpectedly, at a time when I was feeling really low and overwhelmed, so discovering it was definitely meant to be. Well thank you for messaging, I'm glad you discovered it, and I'm glad it helped. Hey, Will and Amy, I love art therapy. I've started painting out my emotions with red and black paint for those very young parts that couldn't rationalise. Very good. Loved hearing your art therapy session. I love feathers and glitter. So do I. Hey, Will, thank you for the episode on art therapy. I was really inspired to give it a go too. You and Amy are making a difference. Keep going. You hear that, Amy? We're making a difference. Hey, Will and Amy, I've been listening since day one and I just want to say this is by far my favourite podcast out there. There's something really sincere and innocent about the way you approach all the subjects and I think you're really respectful to your guests. I like this. This is my manager. My favourite episodes are the ones where you're outside the studio and it feels like we go on a meditative journey with you. Oh, outside broadcasts. I really like the ending where you read messages from listeners and I hope mine will make it on the list. Well, it has. And if you want to get in touch, email hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com, Twitter at The Wellbeing Lab, Instagram and Facebook at The Wellbeing Lab Podcast. Next week, it's the final episode. 
of season two and it's grief. And if you like this podcast, please give us a rating or share it with a friend. Maybe leave a review as it all helps us get to a wider audience. Thank you so much. So we have a little bonus for you. We like to do that sometimes. Is it cash? No, but it's the next best thing. Just ask a question. It's a organisation set up by some people, Danny Gray and a couple of others, where they've interviewed so many different people. Well, let him tell you about it, that you can find out a lot of information from them on wellbeing. So here's our little chat. My name is Danny Gray. I'm 37. My dad had two young boys who are seven and three. So I'm in the trenches at the minute, mate, with them. They are my life. But I, a couple of things that I do. One is that I started a men's cosmetic brand, makeup brand called Warpaint for Men, which is going quite well. And then the other thing I've just created is a interactive mental health platform called Jack. So J-A-A-Q, and it stands for Just Ask a Question. The reason I started both of those brands was because of my own struggles with uh, BDD or body dysmorphic disorder. Because when I was 12 years old, I got bullied only for a couple of weeks at school because my ears used to be like right angles to my head, but it massively affected me. And then I've been wearing makeup for 20 years but that was a bit of a taboo thing to do. And I always thought there must be a brand that comes around that sort of resonates with me as a man. And there wasn't. So four or five years ago, I decided to create my own brand, Warpaint. But then that led me on to create a mental health brand because I've been using products to deal with my mental health. But I think that's just a tool you can use where you've got to get your mind right. So very excited about Jack uh, and the future, really. So I hope that was a good intro, Mel. That was a very, very good intro, I thought. I mean, it was concise. It was impressive actually i'm gonna say i'll take that mate they're more impressive than my penny whistle that i was uh, blowing earlier uh and for the listener that's not a metaphor i do have a little recorder here so let let's go back briefly so when did your bdd start presenting itself so uh, pretty much from so i was 12 years old jack lad at school captain of the school football team didn't have care in the world and then literally three lads started taking the mick out of my ears on, on the playground. I, I started, I noticed my ears, right, straight away as soon as I went home. And that's the first time I even noticed them. And then within like three to six months, I had my ears pinned back on the NHS, which probably shows me that at 12, it was really affecting me for my mum to put me through that. But that didn't fix the issues. So I got to about 15, 16, started getting spots. Not necessarily acne, but for me, that was a massive issue. Turned to my sister, gave me some concealer. And honestly, man, I couldn't believe what product done. So I've been wearing makeup for the last 20 years. Again, it was a tool I was using, but I didn't manage my, my mental health at all. So it got to about, I don't know, 19, 20, got worse and worse. It would take me hours to get ready. I could have three or four showers before I went out. And then it just got worse and worse up to about 28. And then actually, I thought I was losing my hair, which I wasn't. But that's how much BDD can sort of mask your mind, where for two years, it's just ruled my life. That's all I thought about, really. I even, I even had a hair transplant when I didn't really need one. And then I, I sort of had a breakdown about... I don't, I call it a breakdown, but, you know, I was going out a lot, drinking drugs and stuff like that and got to about 30 and then in the middle of the night, went my mother-in-law up of all people at four o'clock in the morning was like, look, I just can't manage my mental health. And then I, you know, before that, I knew I had BDD because my fiance, who I've been with for 14 years, she, she told me within a few months that I've got it and I sort of ticked every box, but I just didn't do anything about it. So yeah, so BDD's been affecting me. Well, look, I've just spoke to you before this we started recording and I'm going away tomorrow to Dubai. So I've got to pack my bag, which can take me quite a long time, right? Because my clothes are a big issue. Not, I don't want to call it an issue. Clothes are a big thing for me. I need to feel comfortable in what I'm wearing. So I have to plan what I'm going to wear when I'm out there. So still affects me today, but I've learned to manage it a lot better than a few years ago. 
And did you get some help with therapy or counselling or anything like that? Yeah, I, I did some therapy when I was about, I, I think about mid-20s. I had four therapy sessions, which were very helpful. Uh, but look, I think... I just don't think my mindset was right for it. I didn't really realise that I'd I had something so bad. So I went to therapy just to go, if that makes sense, rather than wanting to try and get better. But then after I did sort of have that sort of mini breakdown and reach out, I started to manage it a little better. But then I started just Googling and trying to find out everything I could about BDD. And that's when it really hit me about the lack of information that's out there. Well, not lack of information, but how you digest it, right? Or how you get it. So that's why I wanted to create something like Jack because for me going to therapy was a big step and I just don't, I wasn't there, but I think getting the right information for me was massively important. So I did try therapy. I'm going to go through it. I'm planning to do it this year. Well done. And also I think everyone's ready at different times, but what I think so brilliant is your idea for Jack because information is so important, you know, and, and certainly when I, I mean, I had a full breakdown, which, you know, I would thoroughly recommend. Uh, it's great fun. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that did help me, I know sometimes it cannot help if you've got an overly anxious mind, particularly with sort of things like health anxiety, but it did help me going on the internet and finding certain forums or, you know, I diagnosed my depersonalization, it's an anxiety disorder, through going on the on the internet. So, you know, finding information, you know, knowing that I'm not crazy and that I actually have something that is oh okay well that's what it is takes away 50% of the problem at least I think absolutely mate like like for me I think you've hit now on the head there so look google the internet can be an amazing place to find out information but it can be the flip opposite right where people can go down a bit of a rabbit war and and then you know assume the worst a lot of the time and, and that's what I was finding and I was getting loads of customers of war pain. My men's cosmetic brand reached out to me to ask me questions about mental health. And that's what it dawned on me, right? A little bit of what you said about forums is that lived experience is really important and just understanding. And if, if you actually take it 10, 10 years, the actual average length of when someone first feels something to when they reach out with mental health, right? So it progressively gets worse and worse and worse over 10 years. And then generally like yourself or me, you sort of reach out or try and find out information when you get to that crisis point and that's what i think a lot of society is doing at the minute and there's a lot of stuff out there to help with crisis there's calls line text line services nhs but for me what i want people to do is is find a way to find out information way before that 10 year because it's, it's known uh, that the longer you leave it the harder it is and then for me if you go on google or even a forum sometimes all you're doing is reading text and it's very hard to take that in an empathetic way and to get the right information and who can you trust as well so a lot mm. of time you go on google like what is depression this is what i was using the example is 3.2 billion hits you get and then the first 10 items you read are either a blog or text from an nhs website and all you got to look at social media the way it's moving with Everyone wants to watch video content now and digest it in that way in short, sharp bits of information. And I think with Jack, that's what we've done. We've literally gone, got the world leading experts, people with lived experience, well-known faces. So you can literally have an interactive Q&A with them online. It's completely free as well. Anyone can go and use it. Because for me, the information changed everything. Once I started understanding that I had something and not necessarily tips, but see how other people manage it. I started using some of those things in my daily life and it changed everything for me. So that's where I do think there's a, I don't call it a gap in the market. I hate calling it that, but I think that's, everyone says you see all these documentaries and everyone says you need to talk. I think it's very difficult still to do that and yeah. people are going to wait. So hopefully when we get people coming to a platform, they feel a bit 
like you're having a conversation or not, not having to, if that makes sense, you might be confident then to reach out and have a conversation. I was having a cigarette outside the theatre. I'm doing this play at the moment. And a guy came up, you know, he seemed a bit low or a bit stressed and asked for a cigarette. And so I asked him how he was, because one, I'm nosy. And two, he was, seemed like he was in a bit of pain. And, you know, this person, I won't say what they shared with me, but they were having a tricky time. And I would say he identified as a straight guy. And what was interesting, there were a few things that were interesting. One, it made me realise, you know, I think it can still be quite difficult for men to sort of have this sort of thing of, well, you must be alpha and you must be this and that and that. But also what was interesting is then someone that he knew came along and I observed the interaction between them. And I thought, God, this guy who also identified as straight, he's not listening to his mate at all. Mm. He's not listening to him at all, you know? And weirdly, yesterday, I then saw the friend of this guy I was speaking to, and I said to him, oh, you know, nice to see you. I said, you know, look out for your mate because I think he's having a hard time. And then he started telling me about what mm. hard time he was having. But I think it can be really difficult for men. Absolutely. And do you know what it is? Like, I think people think you need to know what the answer is all the time and a lot of time it's not right it's just listening to what mm. they need to say rather than you don't need to have all the answers but this is the other thing i'll go back to jack what we've done on there is that every person on the platform or expert whoever it is we've asked them as questions about supporting someone so what i want jack to be is let's say that example if a mate says i'm struggling or i don't know what it is or i'm feeling like this imagine rather than a mate having to feel what he has to say you could say something like well go on that jack have you seen it like it's got you can go on there's loads of people you can ask and maybe be able to signpost people to somewhere they might be able to get some information or he could go on and find out like how mm. to support someone going through something i think you made a very good point just then in saying that you don't have to you know have all the answers for the person and i i think i said to this guy i said you know i'm not going to take away your experience of feeling crap because what you're going through is really crap. And I think that's the problem, isn't it? We feel like we should fix friends. So we jump in, but that's not always the best thing. It's actually just nice to listen. So it's great that people, if they're having a problem, can go on your platform and find out more about it. But also if they want to support their friends, they can go on your platform. Absolutely. Like we've, but the thing is, we've got, a, there's a huge variety on there, right? So we've got all these conditions. So eating disorders, suicide prevention, BDD, depression. But then we've got everything from physical health. So we've got stuff on there about fertility. So I always use this as an example. The physical impact of infertility or, or IVF treatment is difficult. But I'm telling you, the more difficult thing is the mental impact of it. That's what I want to say is that if you can learn how to manage and process stuff differently, it, it can change everything. So we've got physical health, we've got uh, learning differences. So I'm dyslexic. And again, for me, the physical impact of dyslexia, struggling to spell, wasn't the problem. It was the mental impact for me of not thinking I was good enough or I wasn't bright because I couldn't spell where if you flip it on its head, 40% of self-made billionaires, not that it's all about money, are dyslexic, you know, mm. um, and you use another part of your brain. So potentially you're quite creative if you, if you suffer with dyslexia. So, so it's seen as a positive rather than a negative. So we've even got physical things you can do, right? So we've got yoga, sound healing, mindfulness. So you, effectively you can have a mindfulness session on Jack or you can go listen to sound healing see if it's something that might be able to benefit you. And then the other thing I want to do is get people maybe trying stuff because I was a bit of a, I ain't going to try doing anything uh, until I fall upon it really. Um, and once you learn these little tools and stuff to help you manage your mental health, I think it changes massively. And what do you mean when you say trying stuff? You mean like sort of tools or? Yeah. 
Is there anything, right? Is it like I do cold showers now every morning? It's all these little things. Once you put these little touches into your life, it can make a big difference. And that's what I mean by what we want to do is just show that you've got all these things you can maybe try. A lot of them might not work, but if one or two works, it makes a small impact to your life. It's massive, right? What must be interesting is you're probably getting very useful data on Mm. data can be seen as a dirty word, but I can't think of information, let's say, on the questions people are asking. Have you noticed that a lot of people are asking about particular things? Yeah, and that, that's a really good point, Will. So we don't get personal information. We don't take that. But, you know, what are people clicking on? Last month, our second biggest topic was hair loss. Wow. I mean, I had hair plugs. And a few other friends started going through it around the same time. It really debilitates your confidence, your self-esteem, your, you know. And it, it, one in two men will suffer with it quite badly. And that in terms of data, right? So all of a sudden we're like, oh my God, we've only got one conversation on there is hair loss, which is one expert talking about all different types of hair loss and treatments and then shaving your hair off and what's good, what's bad. Imagine now, because we've seen that data, we can say, right, let's put some more conversations in there about hair loss. And just all I want to do is give people all the information, a bit like Google, from different aspects about treatment, prevention, shaving your hair off. And then people come to one place, get all the information and go, okay, well, I feel better because there might be an option for me any way I go. So the other thing as well is about what questions are most clicked. Mm. So it can really lead us and shape us on what content to deliver. We want to try and become the Google of mental health. One place you can come rather than having to go, I've got to go to this site for this information. Oh, I've got something else. So each time you've got to go and search and find a relevant bit of information. That sometimes for me is, a, is an absolute pain as well. Well, I don't know where to go. I think it's amazing, actually. You're smashing it out of the park. It's so lovely talking to you, and I really hope that lots of people get guided towards your website and, and your makeup. JAAQ.org, completely free. Go and check it out. And look, if you want to try out some men's makeup, it's wallpaintformen.com. We've also just launched in Superdrug in 350 stores, so it's probably in a local Superdrug store as well. Well, Danny, safe travels, and thank you so much. Thanks so much. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the ACAST Creator Network? It's true.